I'm gonna get it right this time. I was just looking. This is your fourth appearance. I think you're you've been on uh, you've been in, on endurance innovation more than anyone else, which is cool. Oh, that's that's nice. That's great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining me today for I uh, just checked, and it's the fourth time, and uh, holding the honor for the greatest number of appearances on Endurance Innovation is a uh, friend of the show and fellow podcaster, Michael Erickson of uh, That Triathlon Show and Scientific Triathlon. Michael, uh, thank you very much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Yeah, it's uh, always fun to chat, Michael. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, and uh, listeners, we you you wouldn't know this, but uh, Michael and I just recorded uh, an episode that's going to go on. Uh, it's going to go up on that triathlon show in the near future. So this is Michael returning the favor. So thanks again, man. No problem. No problem. Excited to to get into this topic. It's a it's a it's a really good one, and and I think I think well, you'll introduce the topic, but uh, yes. but I'm excited for it. <laughs> yeah, um, and just one more note before I do that is uh, Andrew's actually found himself a race somehow. I don't know who he bribed uh, because uh, you know all of our Canadian listeners you know that racing is kind of a you know feels like a distant memory and a hope for the future for us right now but he's up uh racing the sinister seven this weekend so he won't be joining us uh but having said that yeah let's uh let's introduce the topic and this is something that i've personally wanted to cover um sort of for well i don't know self-serving reasons maybe because it's something that uh keeps coming up in my own coaching practice. Um, and I, I think I know the answer to some of these questions, but I always wanted, you know, it's always good to have a second opinion. And uh, broadly speaking, we're going to cover today the role of monitoring heart rate in uh, endurance training. Uh, and uh, as I said, I, I really wanted a second opinion on this. And uh, somebody like uh, like Michael is the perfect person. I uh, I think I, I think of you sometimes, Michael, as kind of like a, an embodiment of a meta analysis in uh, in triathlon and endurance sport. You know, you're you you tend to uh, you tend to have a lot of uh, a lot of you, you tend to do a lot of research, and uh, and on your show, of course, you synthesize that research on a on a weekly basis. So you know, there are a few people out there that I can think of that uh, are probably better positioned to speak to the kind of the state of the science on this topic uh, and not only the state of the science but also um, the uh, you know the practical applications of it because you also of course speak to so many coaches on your show yeah and I think that's where where the rubber meets the road with uh, the practical application and uh, and that's where I mean there is no right or wrong answer so what I'll say is probably only going to be my opinion there are some things we might get into that are more scientifically validated or can be said to be right or wrong but but many things that we'll talk about is more about a philosophical question really how do you coach the best and, and this is kind of the methods that that i have been using that uh, i guess i will uh, i will try to explain Perfect. Oh, that sounds that sounds terrific. So, um, again, let's start with kind of a, a high level overview, uh, just so so that we're kind of all on the same page and listeners are too, and then we can uh, dig a little bit deeper. So, broadly speaking, what is it that um, wh- what is it that heart rate tells us uh, when we monitor it during training and when we look at it after the fact? And I mean, obviously, beyond you know how many times your your heart beats in a minute, that's that's the trivial answer. But what is what is that uh, what is knowing that tell tell us as coaches and as self-coached athletes 
So essentially, it's it's a measure of your internal load. So so if you think of the uh, the run as an example, your external load, uh, the mechanical work that you produce, is the speed that you're running, and another bike, it's the power that you're riding at. And but then to produce that mechanical work, you have to your body goes through a has a strain put on it, and and that is your internal load, which can be measured with i guess oxygen uptake would be a, a, an even more specific and more accurate way of, hmm. of measuring it but but as a proxy and and the best non-invasive uh, way of measuring the internal load heart rate is probably the the best we have uh, with lactate is also great of course but that's something that we can only sample and we cannot measure continuously like mm-hmm. we could with uh, with oxygen uptake in a lab and heart rate in the field so so that means that for most intents and purposes heart rate is the best one because that's the one that we can continuously measure in day-to-day training in the field so so we can even though it's not necessarily the most accurate compared to oxygen uptake it's something that we can we can have day in and day out and and monitor uh, re- repeatedly uh, as opposed to something like like oxygen uptake Mm-hmm. Okay, and we will get into um, the some of the inaccuracies or some of the things that that you know some of the maybe confounding variables of measuring heart rate a little bit later in the show, listeners. But uh, let's talk about heart rate uh, and compare it to the the metrics that you just measure you just mentioned. Um, so pace for running or power for cycling. How does uh, heart rate stack up? And this, uh, I want you to answer this, Michael, from the lens of utility. So from uh, from a you know, coach yourself, coach perspective. Yeah. And this is where I know many coaches who maybe use heart rate more as a primary variable to prescribe training by than I do. I tend mm-hmm. to rely on power and pace quite a bit, at least with sort of the uh, mostly quite advanced athletes that I coach uh, because they, uh, that, that just seems to work very well i think that with beginner athletes i'm quite often when i have coached beginner athletes i don't have so many at the moment uh, but then then i would be perhaps more inclined to use heart rate quite a bit but uh, that being said um I, I think in terms of executing training from an athlete's perspective uh, my preference is that you should always be aware of both your external load so your pace and or power and your internal load, which would be your heart rate, and also your RPE, which you could call in a way an, another measure of internal load. Uh, I guess it's a an integrated uh, measure in in some ways. But but those three, so either power uh, or pace, and heart rate and RPE, I, I like my athletes. I want my athletes to always monitor all of them in their in their sessions. And and even though the primary metric that I have prescribed a session by might be okay, you, you're going to go out and do this endurance ride at, at 200 watts. But if they see that their heart rate is doing something um, something that is unexpected out of the norm, then they need to take that information into account together with their RPE and their power and uh, take an executive decision. And what that is, that really depends on the combination, the the integration of all of those three factors. Hmm. So, so that's kind of my high-level overview of how I use heart rate it's not it's rarely the primary prescription but it is in certain circumstances and we can definitely go into what those circumstances might be yep. uh, but it's always something that should be present and also is something that i definitely value just as much as as power and pace in in monitoring uh, monitoring training load overall and monitoring uh, the workout and how in in post hoc analysis mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's a great uh, that's a great answer, and I will I will ask you to to uh, zoom in a little bit. But let's start with um, something that I hadn't considered so much is uh, that you you mentioned that you use heart rate more as a primary metric for beginners, and why would that be? Well, it, it, as opposed to a more advanced folks, yeah, I mean, yeah, it would be because I think the more advanced folks they are pretty good at self-regulating if they feel on a day that mm. okay actually i feel really quite fatigued i should probably dial it down they don't necessarily need heart rate to tell them that they can just feel it and they know that if i write endurance ride in the title of their workout even though the power might say one thing they will know that okay the intent of the workout isn't to produce a lot of fatigue and if they feel quite quite knackered then then they will take that into account and they won't take it super they, they, i mean of course they will take it seriously but they, they won't be locked into that power number or the pace number uh, that that they have in the workout uh, description whereas beginners sometimes i feel they almost view it as a as a test like a, or an exam in school that they want to <laughs> get a score on and and that yes. score has to be 10 out of 10 and and that's where it can be a bit more dangerous when you're using those external load metrics as the primary prescription yeah no that's a, that's a great answer and uh, i actually the i i i agree with you maybe 98% but the the 2% where i i don't quite agree with you is is uh, where i know some fairly advanced folks who are still who still treat workouts like exams who still want to you does, know who still yeah, want to hit the target <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah fair enough um so um, are there any specific cases, and you mentioned that there might be, where um, where heart rate may become a primary metric? And so uh, I'm kind of li- going to lead you <laughs> on a little bit uh, for this for this question. Uh, specifically, I mean in in long duration endurance training. So you know, long runs, long rides. Is that one of those cases where you may put a little bit more emphasis on heart rate, especially maybe if it's if it's hot outside, as an example? Um. It can be, but to be honest, it, it isn't very often. It, uh, <laughs> although I would see the utility in that. I, to be honest, in in my, again in my case, I coach mostly pretty advanced athletes, and and I could go either way there, either power, pace, or heart rate as the primary. Again, because I, I know that the athletes will always take both into account, so so it doesn't really matter, right? Which one I have, have as the primary one. I in the written description or workout, I would write zone two and it's really not it, it if it says zone two it it's zone two power and zone two heart rate so if you're going at the top end of your zone two power but your heart rate is way up high in zone three then the athlete through the educational process that we're going through over the time in the coach athlete relationship they will know that okay i should dial power back a bit so that i get heart rate closer to if not to zone two as well yep. so so, so, so it's kind of, I guess, agnostic in that way, and and what is the primary or the secondary doesn't necessarily matter. Um, but, but I think that, and, and we will come on to, onto this probably. But in in long endurance, in, in low intensity workouts, yes, you could just as well use heart rate as power and pace. There's definitely no downside to using heart rate. Uh, to be honest, it's more, I guess, uh, habitual that I'm using power and pace in those, but mm-hmm. uh, but I see no reason not to use heart rate as the primary but uh, yeah you can follow up with uh, wherever you want to go from there 
Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a very reasonable answer. I mean, um, for in my own two cents, sometimes I do I will use for long for long efforts. I will use heart rate primarily, but I like your point about you know if you prescribe a zone two workout, you are you know you're expecting your athlete, especially after you've spent some time with an individual, to understand that that means a certain effort, and that that doesn't mean that you know one of your metrics can be in zone two and the other one can be in zone three, um, and that I think I think it was Andy Cog who said that that you know the zones when he were when he was working on them are meant to be descriptive and not prescriptive and i think that that actually makes a lot of sense to me and that sort of you know uh jives with what you were just saying yeah um so yeah that makes sense and and there was one other thing that that uh that i you know, can think of uh, on that topic and that is that there are some cases where i will uh prescribe the uh uh, the long endurance type workouts for athletes by heart rate and that is when if i feel that an athlete maybe is a somebody who tends to run at a kind of or like work out at a very high heart rate generally and maybe lack a little bit of that aerobic development and that may be mm-hmm. a hunch as much as anything then i sometimes would uh, like to basically err on the side of caution and prescribe something by heart rate. And that is one of the reasons for that, to be honest, would be that I could err on the side of caution by prescribing a a lower power target. So for example, something in zone one or the very low end of zone two, but that might maybe not be something that the athlete feels so good about. They would feel like Hmm. uh, maybe even as a hit to the ego. So but prescribing a heart rate target is more, uh, I guess uh, it, it's not so, it doesn't hit so personally, so to say. <laughs> so that's where you can be, uh, yeah, you, you can make sure that you're not going too high. And and I guess if, if we're becoming more technical, if we don't really have a good estimate of where the, the athlete's first lactate threshold, their LT1 is, and we want to kind of make sure that uh, we'll, we're staying below that, then that's where, okay, going a fair bit below where we think it might be by heart rate is a, is a good way of ensuring that. And if we're unsure about where it is in terms of power and pace, if, if that makes sense without hurting the athlete's feelings for those <laughs> low intensity workouts. Yeah. Uh, you bring up uh, a really good point with, uh, with, you know, LT1. Um, and this is something that I, uh, listeners, I didn't ask Michael to think about before he, <laughs> before he came on the show, but I'm going to put him a little bit on the spot, but I suspect he has a good answer for me. Um, what sort of uh, performance testing or maybe not performance testing, but, but benchmarking do you use to determine your, your relative heart rate intensities? And are you following for heart rate? Are you following a three zone model, a five zone more zones what is your preference for that five zone model is my preference uh i I think uh, a pretty good even if well i I i'm not sure i should say good but a a decent decent first guess at lt1 might be simply to take 75 to 80 percent of an athlete's maximum heart rate it could even and 80 would be for those athletes that i feel okay this is a fit individual Mm -hmm. very aerobically well developed and 75 would be more somebody who i think has less aerobic development and uh, maybe stronger on the anaerobic side or simply less experience in endurance sports in general so 75 to 80 percent of of max heart rate I, i think is is generally pretty good uh and I guess we'll come on to uh, to cardiovascular drift in a in a bit, but mm-hmm. but another uh, another thing that you can look at is whether they're able to to do a long workout without any cardiovascular drift drift uh, at a certain power or pace or heart rate, uh, I should say, and and then you might 
that's a bit of a trickier one because you need to probably go out and test different ones, almost like a maximum lactate steady state test and do <laughs> several long, long rides or runs at a slightly different heart rate each time to see where they're starting to not be able to do it without any cardiovascular drift anymore. But that's yeah. something that I guess I'd never use as a first pass of LT1, but it can be used sort of to validate whether you're correct in your current estimate that you have but of course i i like athletes to actually get a lactate test that uh, that assesses it mm-hmm. and some athletes do that but it's not it's not something that is a must per se but it's it's very useful to have because especially the heart rate never really changes some athletes that i coach haven't even done a lactate test while they've been coached by me but they've done it in the past with uh, uh, in, in the past whether they've been coached or not and they have that mm-hmm. data and even if we know that the power of pace data is uh and not at all up to date we can still use that old heart rate data fairly accurately if it's yeah. not 10 years old but it's more like two or three years old that's something i want to highlight because i think that's a really important point listeners is that your heart rate really does not change all that much i mean there is as to your point michael there is decline you know over a broad span of years but but within a shorter span there there is not a lot of evidence that it that it does change and so your mechanical output may change hopefully hopefully increases for the same heart rate but uh you know your your heart rate intensity zones do not change which is actually kind of nice you know it is it's one of those stable metrics that you can rely on provided that you have good confidence that your or, you know, the test that was done was was of reasonable quality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The other te- the other things I'll mention on my end is I, I'm a huge fan of the, the I think the talk test is actually quite effective for LT1. You know, if you can carry on and this is this I'd like to ha- be a, with the athlete ideally, you know, because sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah, I can talk. And it's like, you know, a word at a time. And then they take three breaths between every word. And that's like, no, you're not talking that. I mean, you're talking, but that's not that's not the talk test. Uh, our mutual friend David Tilbury Davis used to say you want to do uh, you want to <laughs> if you're American, you want to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And if you're not American, you don't know the pledge of allegiance you can do the uh, the nursery rhyme of baba black sheep if you know that one if you have kids in an english-speaking country you definitely know that nursery rhyme if you can do that kind of in one go uh and uh without you know really struggling to breathe you're probably below or you know at lt1 yeah. uh, and that is based in the literature in carl foster's work where they did use the pledge of allegiance to actually uh, validate this that being said i think i have come to and i've used the talk test a lot as well but but i've sort of come to think that maybe a long paragraph like that isn't necessarily that might be undershooting things a little bit hmm. i think that you can be at your lt1 and talking slightly shorter even half broken sentences it's not you're not huffing and puffing excessively but but i think that especially fit quite fit athletes can yes can be at a slightly higher level where they can't really talk as freely as uh, as a complete paragraph in one go without any any issues but they can still be at their lt1 so mm-hmm. so i think that yeah I've, I've in more recent times started to i guess see some flexibility there in just how much you should be able to talk or not Agreed. I mean, and with with experienced athletes, I think you're spot on. With less experienced athletes or intermediate athletes, kind of my take is if you if you're gonna miss LT one, you're better off missing low, right? If you're yeah. you're better off lowballing LT one by a little bit than overestimating it. Just from a training perspective, it's you know I think the utility is is still there and training a little you know below LT one. I'm getting off topic here, but uh, rather than overestimating it and then working too hard for your endurance work, yeah, um, definitely, but. Yeah, to your point, uh, I think like LT one is a, is an is a very useful metric. And listeners, you've you've heard uh, Bruce Rogers talk about HRV um, analysis to estimate LT one, which I've had 
uh, and then some of the folks I've worked with have had some success with uh, on the bike. Uh, on the run, it's still kind of a crapshoot. It works for some people, doesn't work for other people. Um, but that's another way that uh, is you know non-invasive, at least of, of setting that benchmark. Um, so let's, uh, Michael, let's move on. And uh, you mentioned aerobic decoupling, and this is something that is, um, you know, one way certainly to use uh, the combination of metrics that you mentioned. So either using power and heart rate or pace and heart rate. Um, but before we dive in, uh, do you mind defining it for us, please? Yeah, so I, I guess aerobic decoupling is the term used by Training Peaks and Joe Friel, I think, popularized it. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the literature, it's uh, usually called cardiovascular drift or CV okay. drift. Uh, but yeah, it's, it essentially means, well, let's imagine that you're riding or running at a steady pace or steady power, a steady output. And then you look at what happens to your heart rate over a period of time. And is it completely steady, completely flat, or does it start to drift upwards with time? And, uh, that, that is the drift, the cardiovascular drift that we're talking about. And, and, in, and aerobic decoupling as defined by training peaks, you can actually calculate, well, how much does it drift? So you can have a percentage score uh, and where zero percent is no drift at all and mm-hmm. uh, if you have something like 10 percent there would be a pretty uh, well it's very substantial drift so and and then you have a lot of points in between of course or or even higher than that but but the range for most sort of low to medium intensity workouts tends to be between zero and 10 percent or so mm-hmm. right so um why is this useful what does it tell you how do you use it in coaching that's a lot that's a lot of questions (laughs) (laughs) well first of all i i think that it's uh it's a metric that a lot of people want to use and maybe want to give more credit than i think it's worth and again this is just my (laughs) take take it with a grain of salt but but i think it's nothing magical like I've, i've heard discussions about whether uh whether it can be used to infer whether a workout was effective or not whether the stimulus was strong enough or not like you hear people talk about i've heard that line of argument yeah <laughs> yeah and and i just don't see that that cardiovascular drift can uh can be used to infer that at all i, I think uh, i actually really looked at some of the, the literature before this call on that because i wanted to remind myself and there's uh, there are some great uh, papers of it, but one in particular that I think is good, and I can send it to you if you want to put it in the show notes, is by Please. Uh, Ed Coyle and uh, and a co-author with a Spanish name that I can't remember. Sorry, <laughs> uh, but Ed Coyle is a famous exercise physiologist, and yes. uh, basically to to summarize uh, what what he says is that uh, the well most of the cardio- cardiovascular drift is uh, tends to uh, stem from. Uh, from dehydration and hyperthermia and hyperthermia can be caused by dehydration so mm-hmm. so dehydration is a really strong uh, part of it there uh, but uh, but then we also have uh, one one study that they referred to or referenced did a really interesting experiment where they they put the subjects to either have no uh, no rehydration no so actually the subjects in this study either they had uh, they had fluid pumped into them through infusion uh, while they were exercising hmm. to keep their blood volume constant, okay. or they had a control group that did not do that. And uh, but they also had a group that got the infusion but with glucose in that solution. So so they actually got got energy. And and what they saw was that even though a lot of the cardiovascular drift that was seen in the control group that didn't have any of this was uh, was not present in the in the group that that did get a, a fluid replacement uh, through infusion there was still because they didn't have uh, 
they, they had constant constant blood volume that didn't change their temperature remained pretty constant or it wasn't mm-hmm. excessive at least uh, but they still saw some heart rate drift which wasn't necessarily explained why or actually i think they had some theories uh around um well, I, I can't really remember. Some sort of receptors, this and the other. <laughs> okay, but anyway, sure. the, the, point, the point there was that the group that did have glucose in that infusion, they did not see any heart rate drift, uh, even though the, uh, the blood volume was the same as in the fluid-only group and the temperature was the same as in the fluid-only group. But that glucose really helped them. Basically, mm-hmm. the hypoglycemia that maybe the, the, the fluid-only group experienced, it caused some... Uh, some response to uh, to cause heart rate to uh, to start going up. So so essentially, the way I use uh, cardiovascular drift or aerobic decoupling is to see whether a hydration strategy, fueling strategy, mm-hmm. and cooling strategy has been effective or not. And and that is kind of what what I think you can infer from it. And it is really useful for doing that. Yes, it definitely is because I think that for long workers in particular we're constantly under hydrating and 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 sometimes and a lot of athletes are also under fueling so mm-hmm. so i think those are and and actually interestingly i haven't used either one of these devices uh and i don't necessarily think that i mean it's it's easy to go and get all of the devices that exist in the world and that's not necessarily <laughs> no, it's not. There, are too, there are too many devices michael <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe it's just me working with this day in day out that i think that it's easy because i can i can uh, write it off as a business expense <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. but but uh but the core body temperature that you have talked about you've had uh, mm-hmm. people from core on your show and also mm-hmm. the super sapiens glucose monitoring uh, which i haven't really until actually today when i reread this study i realized that hey actually that's a cool uh use case for using the uh, the super sapiens device for blood glucose monitoring so so actually yeah some of the factors behind the cardiovascular drift you could now these days monitor with these new devices that are just out on the market which is Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool yeah, the Super Sapiens device is something that's been on my radar. I've I've wanted to cover it uh, on on the show, and uh, just looking for somebody who is impartial uh, to talk about it. You know, this is something that you and I have talked about in the past. Actually, on our recent conversation, it's yeah. sometimes it's hard to find somebody who's an who's a subject matter expert, but who's not who doesn't have some kind of skin in the game, right? Who's not working for one of these companies. Um, but uh, I think you brought up uh, a number of really interesting points on uh, on uh, cardiac drift or decoupling um, that. Uh, and I've I've heard this too from other coaches that the primary driver is dehydration or or um, hyperthermia, which is you know, and dehydration, as you say, dry can be a can be a contributing factor to that. And then hyperthermia is obviously a factor in dehydration. It's sort of cyclical, um, and that's there is there is some evidence to uh, I think uh, I'm trying to remember who who I who I heard speak speak about this. It could have been Kali Moore on his podcast um, about. Uh, you know, uh, motor unit fatigue contributing to it, especially type one fatigue, and then you're having to recruit type more more of the type two uh, motor units in order to produce power, and they are of course a little bit more more oxygen hungry, um, and they're thereby driving some of the some of the higher heart rate. You know, requiring a higher cardiac output. Uh, I think that's that. I hope I'm not misquoting him. I think that was on his podcast, um, but uh, that could explain part of part of that. You know, motor unit fatigue has to do with the you know the glycogen stored in those motor 
motor units. And so potentially the infusion that you mentioned in the coil study, the infusion that had the, the glucose in with the fluid uh, could be, you know, working to spare some of that glycogen. So that could be potentially why that would be my guess as one of the one of the mechanisms of action of why there was no uh, cardiac drift or, or yeah, cardiac drift in yeah, uh, in the in the studies in the study subjects who received the glucose uh, infusion, um, but it is I've also heard, as I mentioned, folks talk about you know using trying to use cardiac drift to define useful workouts and non-useful workouts, and I agree there's there's just too many confounding factors. It's it's like it's you know to your point of of overheating, right? So if the subject overheats and uh, and then and then shows some cardiac drift, you can't then make the conclusion that this was an effective session. Necessarily, because you know the the drift was driven mostly by by overheating and dehydration. So, exactly, yeah, excellent yeah. points, excellent points. Um, so now I'd like to speak to you about um, about some kind of uh, atypical cases. So sometimes w- sometimes uh, we will see heart rate that is abnormally high or abnormally low, really from the get go in a workout. Um, and I would I would love to hear your thoughts on what uh, what conclusions we can draw from those uh, those cases. So for example, let's start with uh, uh, abnormally high. So if you have an athlete who is doing let's say an endurance, you know, kind of a zone two or a base workout workout where you wouldn't expect a very high heart rate and you're you're seeing a high heart rate um what can you infer from that and what do you do about it yeah so that that could be uh number one it could be caused by environmental conditions so it could be heat or it could be altitude uh but uh, you generally know if your athlete is at altitude so so that's pretty (laughs) easy to to figure out uh but it could definitely be heat that would be my first question to the athlete was it very hot Mm -hmm. uh it's generally not a marker of fatigue or fitness impairment if your uh, heart rate is is higher than normal. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some some good data to show that, but there is some data that indicates that it could be predictive of illness. Uh, so I, I always find it very tricky with with that because, well, are you are you going to train less just because in one workout you had abnormally high caffeine or heart rate it could be caffeine as well is what i (laughs) what i was going to mention uh that was that was one one additional thing that i uh yeah (laughs) that i thought of (laughs) but uh but i think i mean for with with the illness thing it's really difficult i would generally not take action on the heart rate being high unless the athlete also says that they have been feeling that maybe they're coming down with something Uh, i wouldn't use the heart rate data alone because I, i don't feel that it's that strong a marker um, hmm. I would maybe if also their resting heart rate in the morning was high, then yeah, that, that could be a, a cause for maybe, yeah, pulling back some, some training and, and resting a bit because they might actually really be, uh, coming down with something and then mm-hmm. it might be better to just nip it in the bud. But I, I think eight times out of 10 is it's heat, uh, or maybe caffeine, uh, as well, but, uh, mm-hmm. but it could be predictive of illness, but it's not something I would worry about as uh, a marker of fatigue or, or impaired fitness, unless of course that impaired fitness. Yes, it could be if you haven't been training, but if you have been training consistently and you suddenly see a higher heart rate, that's not going to be because you suddenly became less fit. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but if you're off the couch for, uh, or you're, you're on the couch <laughs> for two weeks, then, then it's a different story. Then, then that could be the reason. Yeah, um, I I totally agree with you. I think um, 
as a, as a marker of illness, yeah, I agree. You would you'd want to get some feedback from the athlete uh, as to uh, as to other symptoms. One thing, and this is purely anecdotal, um, based on kind of my own findings and the folks I've worked with, and this is kind of topical because we're you know we're all getting our vaccines now. Um, Post COVID vaccine, there's been. I think with everyone I've talked to, everyone I coach and my friends who are you know, coaches and athletes in and around Toronto and for, with myself, um, almost everyone has seen, again, anecdotal, but almost everyone has seen considerably higher heart rate, even when this, when the other symptoms of the, the post-vaccine are gone for, uh, for a number of days, uh, maybe, you know, two to three days after the, va- after the vaccination. So that's, that was just one, you know, one interesting case study. Um, and also I had, um, unfortunately I had two athletes that I coach in Toronto who contracted COVID um, in both almost at the same time, but they don't know each other. So totally separate cases. I think there was in uh, March or April, and um, both were fine. You know, they came back just fine. But they, their, their, they had elevated heart rate for a, both of them for a very long time post uh, post infection, even after all their other symptoms had cleared up. And uh, we had um, we we had a, a gentleman talk about post COVID effects. Um, uh, Fabiano Araujo. Um, on the show, post-COVID effects and, and cardiac effects are one possibility. I don't think these these guys had any, you know, kind of anything they needed medical attention for, but they certainly did exhibit a higher than than average heart rate for quite some time after after recovering from COVID too. Yeah, yeah. Regarding the vaccine, uh, I'll let you know in three days. Then I'll in have a, an N equals one <laughs> data point for that as well. <laughs> okay, second shot or first? First. <laughs> first. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the other thing that you mentioned about uh, about fitness, I think you're spot on. Yeah, it is not uh, in my experience. It's it's not a high heart rate is not really a sign of of uh, impaired fitness uh, unless you've been you've been off training. And uh, I think the mechanism there, and this is again coming from Kali Moore, is uh, is blood plasma because I think that that tends to respond to training and detraining very very quickly. And uh, blood plasma, of course, drives heart rate because you know you want a certain cardiac output to produce a certain amount of power or pace. Um, and if you have, you know, less blood plasma because you haven't trained in two to three weeks, then then you're going to have a higher heart rate. Um, I think that's the mechanism behind that. But yeah, if you've been training steadily, I, I agree with you. It doesn't seem to be a, a marker. Yeah. And I guess that that leads us to one more reason that you know, that there could be for having an abnormally high heart rate, which could be simply dehydration. Like if you go into mm-hmm. a workout being really dehydrated, that, that could also be a factor. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a question I will, I will sometimes ask too. Okay. Let's talk about low heart rate. This one's actually, in a way it's a little bit more interesting because it's a little bit, I don't, I don't, I I don't have good answers for it. So I really, really want to know what you think about it. So same question. Um, you know, you can produce the power or pace, but heart rate is abnormally low, like much lower than you would normally expect it. And usually, usually this, this happens with a higher than expected RPE. So um, in that case, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, in that case, I definitely think that it's a first sign of overreaching. And and let's keep in mind that overreaching can be functional or it can be non-functional. So it's not necessarily a bad thing Mm -hmm. if you uh, make sure that you don't go too far with it and then you recover appropriately. But uh, generally speaking, I also think that the science is starting to come now that uh, functional overreaching isn't really necessary versus a stable periodization if you will so so actually yeah when if, if i see that which definitely happens uh it's uh you kind of try to find find a good balance and and pushing the athlete enough but not too much uh, but when you see that first sign that's generally when i would 
quite immediately start to scale things back a little bit with training. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, low heart rate combined with a high RP is, is something that that I don't really want to see. Uh, I I want to rest the athlete a little bit when that happens. Doesn't mean no training, but it means scale back from what they have been doing a bit until they feel fresh and recovered again. Uh, so, so I, th- I think that that's yeah, that that's probably one of the main things when I analyze heart rate. Look at heart rate. It really, that is the main thing I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Is there if there is a workout where the athlete is feeling a bit flat or not really feeling good or feeling it was harder than expected, then I would immediately look at heart rate and see what it looks like. And and if it's pretty low, as you say, abnormally low, then that's kind of a yellow or orange flag. So, so that's that's one of the most useful applications of heart rate in in uh, post workout analysis, in my opinion. Looking for that low, abnormally low heart rate and and preventing uh, overreaching before and before it becomes a big problem. Right. Uh, but if we talk about our more medium to long time scales, uh, maybe a more steady decline in heart rate, then of course it's it can simply be a sign of of adaptation. Uh, fitness improvement uh on the aerobic side so so you also have to i guess look at look at trends a little bit like is this something that has been happening for a while maybe that that they have gradually been have been 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 seeing lower heart rates for the same power output and you just haven't noticed it until now because the steps have been gradual Mm -hmm. so so that is definitely something to look for and and also just if you're training in very cold conditions, then then that also tends to lead to low heart rate. So uh, naturally, because you don't need to shunt as much as much blood to the to the skin for cooling. So right. uh, so I think the yeah the environmental conditions can play a role there as well. Oh, that's a great answer. Um, but I guess in if the if the cause is uh, improved, uh, you know, cardiovascular fitness, you probably wouldn't see abnormally high RPE associated with that workout as well. No, so so that's yeah on the acute scale on a single workout. Yeah, that that is true. But of course, you can improve fitness but still have the odd workout when you're feeling really crappy. True. So so I think that that's where you want to look at a more general trend. Is is this something? Have you seen? the same low heart rate actually potentially in some other workers and you just haven't noticed it uh, until now when you suddenly associated that with with a workout where the athlete was feeling quite bad so so kind of look for that as well and make sure that you don't take any too hasty decisions so so it's just one thing to to look out for do you and I, I'm trying to remember where I where I heard this and it's entirely possible it was on your show. But uh, is there any correlation between that potential scenario with uh, low heart rate and uh, fueling status? Like glycogen depletion, I mean. Yeah, I think I think there can be. Um, I definitely think so. I think maybe Inigo San Milan talked about it in possibly yeah. in the context of uh, of lactate testing that uh, it well at least in terms of reaching high heart rates, reaching that that is actually that that is of course very logical because you you can't really uh really recruit recruit as much muscle those fast twitch fibers that really rely on glycogen if you're glycogen depleted you're not going to mm-hmm. really get to use them and then your heart is going to be lower because you don't have as high oxygen demand so definitely when we're talking about higher intensities in particular then if you are your fueling status is not good you're low on glycogen glycogen depleted then you're not going to be able to reach as high heart rates as normally. So definitely in in higher intensity workouts, that's something that I look for as well. What is the maximum heart rate the athlete was able to reach here compared to what their normal maximum heart rate for that kind of workout is? 
Right. So that, that in that case would be you're mostly looking at uh, high intensity workouts where, you know, maybe the yeah, the, the top heart rate isn't there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's put a pin in the heart rate discussion, and then uh, I wanted to ask you about um, training using rate of perceived exertion (RPE). We've we've talked about RPE quite a bit in this conversation, and uh, this question is prompted by one of our listeners and actually a supporter of the show. Um, and um, I mentioned it on, or I shared my thoughts on it in uh, in the episode that we just. Uh, out well today we're recording on on friday the 9th so it, it went the the episode was launched today but the the question from chris kirker was um about coaching his wife and uh, she prefers to train by rpe alone and she's a long course triathlete so she's done three iron distance races and does not uh does not use no longer uses anything other than rpe and i assume duration of some some sort you gotta you gotta be able mm. to prescribe yeah. duration somehow so let's assume it's duration and rpe so i want to hear what your thoughts are on uh, kind of the efficacy of that method and obviously i know that from your previous answers that you kind of you, you like the uh, the other metrics but uh how do you think that that uh chris and his wife can make the most out of using rpe only and is there something that they're really really missing by not using the other metrics well i think they're missing a lot if i'm honest <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, yeah, for sure <laughs> i think you really benefit from from having those different metrics and uh, yeah and and uh, looking at the data seeing how i mean i guess we if you have a stopwatch you can you can still uh make some inference about whether you improve by doing a known course perhaps a hill on the bike and and well, on the track on the run you can see and in the pool with a pace clock of course that mm-hmm. that's not a problem but but i think just in the day-to-day training being able to see trends and so on on how you're doing whether you're improving or whether you're actually uh maybe 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 deteriorating that's something that i think you really uh, benefit from having heart rate and power or pace data uh, for, and uh, I, I just think that you need to kind of be be flexible with the use of of all of those three and not get too hung up on anyone. And and I know that there are some cases where athletes feel tend to start to feel shackled by by these metrics, and that's mm. not the way that obviously that they should feel. And maybe that's the reason why why uh this uh this lady is not training with with power harders right now because in the past she has and has felt shackled by them uh, i guess i would just try to slowly gradually reintegrate them in the training mm-hmm. but but that's not <laughs> answering the question of how to train train effectively with rpe um i, I guess that uh yeah to one of the main things I would say if you're training with RPE and want to make the most of it is the, what you mentioned earlier with the torque test. Try to figure out your LT1 with the, using the torque test and, uh, mm-hmm. and then you can at least uh, kind of separate low intensity and moderate intensity and, and maybe high intensity would be more dependent on yeah, just best effort for whatever duration of intervals you're doing. So, so you don't really need anything, anything there. But, but the, identifying that boundary between the low intensity and the moderate intensity uh, with with the talk test would be would be my main tip for training by by RPE and maybe even calculating a training load metric such as duration times session RPE so that you can mm-hmm. measure overall load. So, if your session was one hour long and the session RPE was six, then you give yourself uh, six points or yeah uh, or i think you, we actually usually there is some some studies on this and they measure in minutes so 60 minutes times uh session rpe of six so 360 points and then you can kind mm-hmm. of measure your weekly load 
by combining duration and and the session RPE. So so then you have have a load metric there to to monitor as well. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if I have much much else to offer. As you said, <laughs> I would try to reintegrate uh, heart rate and pace and power gradually, mm-hmm. and uh, that doesn't mean that she never can train without them. Uh, I I mean, she, she can even train without looking at them, but still recording them, perhaps, and uh, and then at least you have that information for your monitoring and your post workout analysis. So those would be my uh, my two cents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think uh, one of the things you, you, you mentioned that I didn't didn't consider when I offered my answer is it's hard to gauge progress without uh, without measuring you know stuff. You can you know maybe you can say okay now I can run two hours comfortably now I can run two hours fifteen comfortably, but it's it's hard to know whether or not you know you're whether or not you the the training that you're doing is actually having an effect, which is something you know as as coaches we're always very very curious about. Like are we are we getting better? Or are athletes getting better? Or are they staying the same? Or are they are they getting worse? Um, and that's tough to answer unless you have some kind of objective metric uh, that you can measure. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I'm with you there. Well, Michael, this has been great. Thanks for uh, for being the first uh, for Pete on endurance innovation and uh, for sharing your thoughts on this. And uh, as I as I mentioned in the introduction, this is a conversation that I've been wanting to have for quite some time, just to uh, you know bounce some ideas of mine against uh, against someone with a lot of experience as well, and of course uh, sharing these with our with our listeners as well. So thank you very much for coming on and uh, doing just that. You're welcome. Uh, it was a pleasure as always. Uh, really nice to chat with you and. Uh, well, uh, good luck to Andrew in his race this weekend. <laughs> yes, Andrew, we're thinking about you. So don't uh, don't fall off a cliff. Don't get eaten by a bear. Um, and apparently it's still quite hot because they, they've got some insane heat in uh, in Western Canada and uh, Pacific Northwest of the United States. And uh, and I don't know exactly how warm it is. I haven't checked. I think he's racing tomorrow, which is Saturday, the uh, the 10th. Um, but yeah, hopefully he can, he can keep it cool and, uh, and stay safe and have fun out there. Yeah. Um, and listeners, as always, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, if you enjoy the show, give us a rating and a review on iTunes and um, tell a friend because as, a, as we've been saying for quite some time, that's the best way to, uh, to spread the word about the show and uh, to uh, allow your friends and folks you train with to you know, learn something new, perhaps. So thanks for listening.